some events are occurring right now. Some pretty monumental geopolitical events are occurring right now. The the Western imperial forces are actually being faced with a real challenge at this moment. And it's it's actually not looking very good for Western imperialism, which is a good thing. So all these events are happening now. And what's very clear, if you look at for five minutes at social media or the news or whatever, is that there's a an information war going on. Right here in the uh, in the U.S., we're not physically in battle or anything, but there is a war going on yep. for information. The information war, not to yep. sound all like Alex Jones, but you know, it's a it is a good term, and it's it's what's happening right now, and this is what we're being confronted with. And this episode that we're we've recorded uh, with our guests, uh, we're we're talking about agriculture. I think that this is going to play a very big role moving forward we've already started to see their manufacturing consent for the the supply chain breakdown the gas prices spiking locally we had our energy bills spike we got a bill for a thousand dollars this month for our electricity and this is the effects that we're going to feel from the geopolitical events that are happening right now and the way that it is going to be enforced on us is not through soldiers holding guns to our head or in countries invading or whatever. It's going to be through this soft power and this information war and the narratives that are getting seeded right now that are, you know, degrowth narratives, localism narratives. And this is very important to counter these narratives because what they want is to break down society. They want to decentralize everything, which is only going to result in more price spikes. But we don't have to accept this. And it's important, I think, to understand information wars. A specific example of this would be something that people refer to as the Holodomor. Some people try to equate it to the Holocaust, saying that this was the communists and Joseph Stalin's version of the Holocaust. The funny thing is like, I, I had never even heard of the Holodomor until, you know, maybe a year or so ago. Yeah. It's, it's not something that's like common knowledge. So you might hear about something called the Holodomor. And I would recommend researching this topic on your own and not just believing it because evidence exists that, it might be something akin to the ghost of Kiev. And that's not to say that it it's like it was faked or a hologram or whatever. But I will say that there's evidence that the narr- this narrative that a famine that happened in Ukraine, in Soviet Ukraine in 1932 to 33, the narrative around this famine is that it was done on purpose by the communist by the USSR by the communist party by Joseph Stalin and not just a naturally occurring event there's evidence to back up that this narrative was seeded by people who were working for the Nazi party so there's a lot of fishy information surrounding it like the fact that there were about a you know a dozen journalists at the time who went there and they all had sort of their own numbers that they came up with there was you know reports anywhere from 3 million to 10 million people who died from this 
And the official report kind of just took a average of these numbers. There were pandemics that were happening at the time. There was a drought that happened at that time. The Soviet Union was, you know, brand new. And they had to kind of uh, ramp up to speed in development with the rest of the world. They were sort of in this race to catch up with the rest of the world. They were an agrarian culture. And so they, they took steps to centralize their agricultural operations. And in doing so, they, they kind of made the Kulaks, which is a group of people who were sort of like the, the small business owners at the time. They were like small farmers who, you know, they, they ran small businesses, small farm businesses, and they didn't, you know, they didn't want to give up their land. They were revolting against this idea of like having to hand their land back over. So a lot of them ended up, you know, torching their own land, not, not uh, cooperating with the leadership. And this isn't to just like let the Soviets totally off the hook because they certainly made mistakes. Although you could make the argument that they did the best that they could at the time. And, and if they hadn't caught up technologically with the rest of the world, they m might not have been in the position to ward off the Nazi invasions, you know, and, and it's important, I think, to look at the circumstances around this event and say, okay, was this intentional? And, and I, it, I think it relates directly to what's happening today is that uh, people think that Russia is like intentionally going in to try to um, invade and, and, and conquer Ukraine, which is a narrative that's very hard to believe. Uh, if, you, if you learn the history of how these two countries have historically worked together, and there's a lot of ethnic Russians in Ukraine, you know, they're, they really, Russia has no reason to conquer Ukraine. Quite the opposite, NATO <laughs> does actually have every reason to conquer, basically take over Ukraine with soft power and kind of fight who they see as an enemy, which is uh, Russia, at their doorstep. So I don't really want to tell people what to think. I think people should look at history and use their own reasoning to understand current events and the motivations behind them. But, you know, keep in mind, anytime people try to vilify another group of people and they don't give any kind of material reason, they just say, oh, it's because they're bad. It's because they're bad and they want to conquer. I mean, you, you have to, like, kind of question that narrative. Chinese say that Marxism is when you use uh, facts to find the truth. And that's what Marxists have to do with analyzing the Ukraine situation. And it's possible that the United States even provoked the entire conflict. Uh, knowing that Ukraine would not be accepted into NATO and knowing that the conflict would make Europe more dependent on U.S. exports. Um, that's possible, too. When you look at the Holodomor, it's so, uh, there's so many parallels to what's happening now because uh, there might be a global Holodomor with uh, how fertilizer prices are going and the price of food is projected to increase. There really might be a global Holodomor and there are going to be competing narratives about what really caused it and who's really to blame and who is the genocidal maniac and who is the victim. And you know, this is, this is the time to, to learn more about even through the fog of history, how like so many world events, you know, we, we learned one thing about them, but maybe something else is really true. Or maybe there's some elements of truth that were used and kind of um, 
and I think the you know the the thing that uh, us in the United States have to think about is how um, this provoked conflict, how it might contribute to instituting a, a global policy of degrowth. Just recently, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, uh, basically put out a, a ten-part statement saying that we need to adopt different degrowth measures because the price of energy has uh, gone up so much because of Russia. And, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is the real thing. Like they, they've been warming up for this for a long time. And it's, it really could be happening now that uh, globally degrowth is going to be imposed um, by the ruling class to, um, to make the working class suffer for, you know, the games that the ruling class is playing on a global stage. So th- that's why the whole Demar is important to, to look back at and uh, to try to analyze. Yeah. And I don't even like calling it that because that's basically what the what the Nazis, <laughs> yeah. you know, they they named it that. Um, and I don't really want to repeat, uh, you know, the Nazi narrative. There was a there was a famine in in Soviet Ukraine. And, you know, the other thing I want to mention, too, is that so there was a another famine 10 years earlier in Russia that happened. And there's a lot of evidence that. The photos that were used to, you know, talk about this supposed Holodomor were actually photos that were from 10 years earlier, that were from the Russian famine that had happened 10 years earlier. So all this, this is like a lot of information, but there's this great book that I would recommend if anyone wants, wants to know more of the information, this debunking, it's called Fraud, Famine, and Fascism, the Ukrainian Genocide Myth from Hitler to Harvard. And it's by Douglas Tottle. And you can find it online. We'll put it, we'll put a link to it on our site. You know, that gets my attention because I think Hitler is bad. And if Hitler <laughs> has anything to do with this Holodomor thing, then, you know, I, I want to know about it. So it's definitely worth looking into. Yeah, I mean, even if you, even if you have like sort of a knee-jerk reaction to like, oh my God, that's, I can't believe you're, you're denying genocide. Do yourself a favor and just challenge your preconceived notions and just look at the facts, um, because I think it's worth it. It, it really, it's an informa- It's a war on our brains. It's an information war on our brains, and the best thing you can do to fight it is to take in as inform as much information as you can, as objectively as you can, and parse things together that make sense to you. And it's it's tricky, but. Yeah, I mean, it definitely gives me pause if the Nazis were pushing this narrative. I would want to understand why. And I would I would want to understand why so many in the West were so eager to amplify uh, this narrative when it originated from the Nazis in the 30s. Well, if you want my two cents on it, <clears throat> my sort of psychological profiling of it, is that it's projection. And I feel like that comes up over and over again. I see this like projecting of like, no, they're the Nazis. They're the bad guys. Yeah. And it's like this sort of reverse no you kind of thing that is sort of this tactic, this propagandist tactic that's being used over and over again. Yeah. We see it, you know, even today. Well, yeah, I think it's the precursor. This came out in the 30s, but it was the precursor to the Hannah Arendt school um, once the Cold War started of. Uh, that Stalin and Hitler are the same, that the Nazis and the Soviets are the same. Yeah. And then Khrushchev uh, coming out after Stalin's death and uh, 
you know, eagerly buying into all that stuff and uh, amplifying it by uh, saying all these things about what Stalin did. And then um, going on to today that, you know, someone like George Soros will say that China is the greatest threat to uh, open societies worldwide, you know, with this equivocation that, you know, th that uh, communism is equivalent to Nazism. Yeah. If somebody is just telling you like, oh, that person's bad, but they can't tell you why, you should look into it. Because <laughs> that's that's like red flag number one. You yeah. know, if they yeah. can't. Ex they say that person's bad, but just listen to me and believe me, then there's a good chance they're actually <laughs> projecting some of their own, you know, villainy or whatever onto. Uh, yeah. Second red flag is having a mattress on the floor. <laughs> Don't trust those people. Yeah, yeah, definitely not. So you're in Monsanto headquarters. Like, where are you right now? Uh, yeah, Monsanto headquarters, aka my apartment in Oakland. Uh, no, I'm in I'm in Oakland, California. Uh, I would I go to the office like three days a week, which is in Berkeley. So just just slightly uphill from here. Berkeley. So isn't that where um, that's where Alice Waters uh, started her restaurant? Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We're we're like three blocks from Chipneys, I think. Like maybe maybe four blocks, but very close. Like right down the street, honestly. Have you been there? I have not. Oh, you didn't go for like research purposes? No, it would have been it would have been nice. I mean, the the whole. I mean, I don't I don't have an issue with Chipneys and like the food. I think the food's probably good. I'll say that, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't really feel like I should go now. Or I mean, I don't really I don't really have strong feelings. <laughs> it's on site. Yeah, they have yeah. a picture of you like next to the door, and they're like, if this man comes in, like spinning his food and treat him like treat him poorly. Oh no! I bet, I bet, uh, I bet they don't have a picture of me. I bet they have a picture of Ted, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they definitely, and they probably knew of him beforehand. Uh, like everything with this piece, Ted has gotten like all of the, you know, he's really been a blanket in some way. He's taken all of this like negative, negative energy, and I've sort of people just forget that I'm a the, one of the authors of it, which is funny. Well, we're well, here to we, we're here we to uplift remember. you and yeah. amplify your voice. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Space Commune podcast. I'm Alex. My co-host is Fox. Today we're joined by Alex Smith, who is a food and agriculture analyst at the Breakthrough Institute. Hey, Alex. How you doing? Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. So uh, Alex uh, also works for Monsanto, and uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Alex wrote uh, co-wrote an article with Ted Nordhaus uh, that appeared in Jacobin called "The Problem with Alice Waters and the Slow Food Movement." And uh, it got, got a big response. It was very explosive when it came out. Um, so Alex, can you tell me a little bit about uh, your background with like approaching this issue and like, um, you know, what, what do you notice maybe even in your like past before you started the Breakthrough Institute that made you start thinking about this? Yeah, for sure. Uh, 
I have a, I mean, a long history with organic and slow food stuff. Uh, my mom was totally hooked by the stuff in the nineties. And as a child, I grew up doing a CSA at one of the first, uh, first organic farms in Ohio. Uh, and so I was like, this was not, I didn't have these, the sort of critique lined up then. Uh, but then as I sort of got older and moved away from that, that part of my life and I started working on, I, was, I did, I studied history before I came to Breakthrough Institute. I have a master's in international history. I did a lot of stuff about food aid and sort of um, like diplomacy in North Africa. Uh, and when I started working at Breakthrough, I sort of had a set of not come to Jesus moments. I don't know the right term for this, but sort of a, sort of a shift in, in perspective. I, I, I started working at Breakthrough without really a great uh, understanding of you know, the broader politics of this kind of these kind of debates, I was really interested in trying to sort of uh, utilize some historical slash like social science qualitative research to talk about environment, climate change, uh, to talk about food, agriculture. I've always loved food in the eating side of it, not necessarily yeah. the production side of it. Um, so I thought it would be an interesting thing. And I think in the time since I've been at Breakthrough and uh, have been able to sort of think through these like broader sort of historical trends in agriculture, especially in U.S. agriculture, uh, definitely started thinking about um, it's just the really the the localist sort of small as small as beautiful kind of uh, thinking around agriculture and trying to put that to task at least, and just thinking that this is or just noticing that this is such a hegemonic part of you know, my life. I mean, this is something I grew up with, something that everybody who's like in my social circles, I went to a small arts college uh, where like, you know, there were, there were communal dinners that were, there was a little farm that was built. They added another little farm while I was there. Even <laughs> there's like a whole, it's the really farm, just been, The farm fed everybody, right? It was just, it was just <laughs> yeah, a farm exactly. to, to combat food insecurity at the college. I, I honestly don't think the farm fed anybody, but um, <laughs> my friend Stuart, Stuart, who ran the farm, probably would be upset that I said that. But um, <laughs> well, probably yeah. did like one one hundredth of the calories for like a, a dorm room of four people or something. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They grew they grew some beautiful sunflowers. I will say. Uh, so was yeah. this like one of the contradictions that in your formative years that kind of led you down this path to start questioning this stuff or? Yeah, I mean, without getting like too personal about it, uh, I think there is like definitely some part of this being like sort of the hegemonic role that's like tied in a lot of, in my thinking, to a lot of some more of the like pedantic aspects of like having having had interest in like academia prior to joining Breakthrough and sort of coming from like a like upper middle class family that uh, was really interested in sort of like the like the sort of liberal arts world i think the sort of food and this sort of like slow food organic food local stuff um it really sort of feels like a, a very strong uh a very strong sort of locus of this uh of this sort of broader class and uh, yeah. social scene i'll say personally alex and i both witnessed this firsthand uh here in the hudson valley we have a very strong very strong foodie culture yeah um we're we're headquarters of the cia which is a, an acronym for you know the culinary not just the place in langley but the culinary institute of america mm -hmm. um so we churn out people who are like you know 
huge foodies, the, the local, the localism movement is really strong here. Mm-hmm. Um, the slow food movement. I was very attracted to it. Um, you know, a few years back thinking like, Oh, that's so nice to like go to the farmer's market and, you know, make your own food. And, you know, once you have a little bit more access to like some means and some time and some energy, you have, you have more options and you can kind of get into this stuff. And I think maybe you might agree with me that like a lot of these people kind of replace that with, with politics. They think that that they can sort of project their politics onto this like personal consumption style, lifestyle habit, uh, which is, it's like nice. It makes you feel good to be able to like garden and like pick sprigs out of your garden and like place them on your dinner plate. (laughs) But it's like, it's, I think where it gets dangerous is when people sort of map their political compass onto this. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I definitely agree with that. I think that, um, I think it's really easy to sort of see this thing that is appealing. I think there's a real appeal to, to sort of small scale agriculture. It's, it has, you know, like it's been so heavily romanticized in, in modern life that it's hard to sort of avoid, avoid seeing it as like a a kind of like, you know, you have like dogs running free. There's like people like you're, you're picking an apple and eating it straight from, from a tree and yeah, uh, et cetera. And that seems really appealing, but no, I think you're spot on and sort of pointing to this, the, the strange like slippage that happens where people see like appealing consumption patterns and aesthetics and like then map that directly onto some conception of politics. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you can see it uh, both on the left and the right. So I feel like, you know, it, just as a general mapping, like it, it all comes from this kind of uh, Luddite impulse. Um, and then on the right, it manifests as, you know, kind of uh, cottage core, cozy core, cozy pilled, mm-hmm. uh, Ted pilled people that, you <laughs> know, want to wear, want to wear like, a uh, you know, the woman wants to wear a sundress and the man has like a giant beard. <laughs> and overalls and uh you know farms is like three potatoes for dinner and, and then brings it back to the cabin and then on the left you see um like i see this stuff with like urban agriculture for example i have this meme pulled up it says this is america's first urban agrihood in detroit it feeds two thousand households for free from this three acre garden and a fruit orchard with 200 trees it also has a sensory garden for kids and so on the left, people say like, oh, well, this is great. This is increasing equity and access to uh, you know, nutrient-dense foods for urban people. But they're, they're completely like off about like three acres feeds like, I don't know, half a person or a couple of people maybe uh, if, <laughs> if everything goes perfectly. I've been surprised at how how productive some urban farms are in terms of like quantity of food, but that translation as you're getting at to like how many people it's actually feeding is always it's and also two thousand people is not a lot of people. It's this is like a very small two thousand households. Two thousand households, excuse me. Um, that's still not a lot of people for free. Yeah, for for free is really the part that uh, bothers me because like. That's that's uh, assuming like everyone's labor is free <laughs> and that we don't live in an economic system where like your labor is your like pow- is like the, the thing that you your token in society that you use to get by. And if you can't use it on earning a wage, 
then you don't get a wage and you need a wage to like pay the rent and pay for, for the other food that you can't grow on your own, you know, and the medicine and all these other things. Uh, so this idea that like food is free, like, no, it's, it's not actually, it, it requires a lot of labor and time, you know, yeah. phys- physical sort of uh, endurance. I don't know. Yeah. You, you have to yeah. like actually do stuff when you grow food, yeah. you have to like weed plants, you have to apply fertilizers or, you know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, it's, it's a ton of effort. It's a ton of labor. I mean, even just before we get to that, I think we have a long conversation about that too, is just the idea of this food being free. I mean, it, it seems it's, it's not, it's maybe free to the people who eat it, but it's not free at all. I mean, there's still like the, there's the opportunity cost of, you point out labor, there's opportunity cost of this land, yep. there's opportunity yep. cost of, you know, the seeds. So there's a ton of stuff that goes into the production of this food. That's not, right. that's yeah. very, very made invisible by this. And there's other memes like this where like, you know, if you have a, if you grow two tomatoes and you take the seeds, you can grow 20 tomatoes. <laughs> like there's stuff like that. And become a millionaire. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, the, I've seen, you've seen that on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, or there's this, there's well, a guy on Twitter who does that where it's like every, or if one in 10 Americans yes. like raise two hogs or something. I don't remember what the, I have it. I have it pulled up because this guy also yeah. like shit on your article, but yes, he uh, did. Yeah. <laughs> so he says, reminder, if one in 10 American households raised a half acre garden and kept 35 laying hens, there would be no industrial egg or vegetable production. Yeah. <laughs> if the same no. households raised 10 hogs per year, it would eliminate the industrial pork industry. If the same households kept two dairy cows, not only would industrial dairy be eliminated, but American dairy production would triple. So what it do you think on, about right? that? Yeah, there's more, there's more, but yeah. You know, I, I don't have, I don't have the numbers. I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue with this guy about, uh, you know, whether you could replace the, the calories with this stuff. It's just, I mean, when you start thinking about, you know, the time we talked about the labor, the inputs, I mean, you're raising 35 hens. That's not, that's not a small, like you got to feed them. You have to put effort into this 10 hogs is, um, I, I spent a little bit of time reading about like, the, the history of hog production and like pigs in America. There's a good book called uh, Capitalist Pigs. Hmm. Um, I kept by a guy named J.L. Anderson. And one of the things that was really fascinating in that book was just how, how rowdy pigs are and how, how much damage they cause. So you have 10 pigs, you have to like, you have to be okay with like putting hooks through their nose so that they don't route through like fences and stuff. You have to be okay with like really like sort of beating them in a lot of ways yeah. and housing them in a way that they don't want to be. And you have to, you have to do a lot of work to make it so that they don't make your life a living hell. And this like sort of assumption that, you know, one in 10 Americans would ever be willing to do this or even just have any time to do yeah. this. I mean, even if this is your full-time job, it's, you're not going to make the money you would, that you would need to survive that like you said, pay for everything else that you need to live in today's society. So it's just, it's fantasy. It's, it seems that account seems like a, it, it, they get, it gets numbers. I mean, like yeah. it has followers, they're getting likes, they're getting retweets, but it seems like a complete joke to me. It's just, there's just such a devoid, like such a removal from reality. Yeah. Well, I think your, your article really hits on it that it is this level of sort of this upper, upper middle income bracket of people who are kind of separated from this you know what life was like for people for basically all of human all of human civilization up until like the industrial revolution 
and they don't remember they don't know they like are so separated from what what that kind of reality is like that they but they feel this impulse to kind of reconnect to it and are maybe ashamed of being kind of like yuppies or (laughs) upper middle income people um and they they want to sort of return to this return to monkey return to the they don't want to go for that far back. They don't want to return. Well, I guess some of them, the like Ted Kaczynski types mm-hmm. do want to go, but the, I think the, the, the ones that you're hitting on are more of the, they don't want to go so far back that they're primitive. They want to just go back to pre industrial agriculture. They just, they want to go back to the peasant phase, return to be. peasant. Yeah. That's what I think is. a lot of people don't even want that. I mean, there are obviously levels, there are levels of this, but like a lot of people yeah. who, a lot of people just want to feel good about their purchases. They want to feel good about the sort of choices they're making and they want to feel like they're not, you know, hurting the environment or something right. uh, and not hurting people. And I think there's, um, there's like the people who do the shop, like go to the different farmers markets or trying to sort of buy, they're trying to sort of, it's, there's this like sort of conscious consumerism thing going on like that. That's a big part of this. Um, I think the fair trade movement has like some, there's like a longer history of this that's tied to that. Um, so that's like one element of it. And they're, they're sort of, I think a lot of the political part of there is really trying to defend their own aesthetic choices. Like this is something that is like, you know, it's a part of their, their sort of class their, their definition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this is like, we need to make this thing good. Like it's it like or the, we don't we don't they don't see it as like making good. It's like no, this is good, and this yeah. is good for people. This is good for me, and thus it's good for everybody. Right. Um, and I think there's part. Then there are the people who do really think that like we need to just return. Like there's some like we need to put people back on the land, um, yeah. and that's really that's a different kind of um, political position. That I think is just again. I mean, I, I don't I don't really have a sense of like who like who is making these arguments exactly. I think there's like the deep growth folks who seem to sort of, who, 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 who make arguments that would suggest that that needs to happen, but then sort of pull back on it. There's like the, I think people very, very often point out the sort of Mott and Bailey work that a lot of the sort of deep growth and back to the land type, uh, I don't have all these terms. You guys have like the back to the, I don't know. Yeah, but like these sort of back to land type folks are, uh, they, the claims they make, then they, they try to be like, no, 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 it's, we just want like a little bit more local production and stuff like that. But, you know, you just can't do that with like New York City. You can't do that with Chicago. You can't do that with a, a very American centric, I guess. But uh, like major cities in the world, you, you look at the food footprint that's required to feed these places. It's not local. It can't be local. I mean, yeah. you're going to hit like, you're going to start getting to like Cleveland if you want to have local production of food for New York City. That's right. like, yeah, it's an eight-hour drive. So, well, that was an interesting fact that you brought up in this article: is how um, organic food, organic and local food, kind of takes up more space, right? And it's it's you know maybe not even as uh, eco-friendly as they seem to think it is, because uh, there was a funny line in here about how um, using organic fertilizer, also known as shit, <laughs> basically <laughs> covering you know large swaths of land with just shit you know it's funny too is uh we have a um i don't know if you you're familiar with our crusade against peter buffett here in the novo foundation they're big uh proponents of um degrowth and the local food movement and localism um and they bought you know a giant farm here 
and they were trying to do all they're trying to do like all organic style farming you know mm-hmm. um but i've heard through the break the grapevine that their yields are like not very good yeah. um you know and i've 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 heard you know we we live in a very agricultural area and and from what i know i'm not a, you know an expert on that but it is a lot harder to get higher yields with organic organic food it's and it's not as it's not as big so you won't <laughs> and just the the physical food that you, you you yield is not as big uh it just seems a lot it does you know seem a lot more intensive on the land and less productive yeah definitely i think i think there's a lot of there's a lot of like just science work there are a lot of there are a lot of studies that demonstrate the yield drop in organic production uh if you switch from conventional to organic you're going to have especially in the short term a real yield drop i think there's some evidence suggests that you could maybe raise that over time that as you build up of soil organic content you can get to some you know similar ish uh yield but it's it's i don't think that's mess i don't think that's been shown at like scale um and it's and it's funny i mean i think that there's there are all these assumptions made about organic being, you know, easier on the land. I think it may be easier on like certain aspects of like biodiversity and uh, like on like farm level biodiversity specifically, uh, because you aren't, you know, spraying pesticides in the same way you are, you are spraying pesticides, you're spraying organic pesticides. Uh, You are using organic fertilizer, not, not synthetic fertilizer. And the, like there's also this assumption that organic agriculture is not done at like large scale uh, where that's also not really, there are, there are very large organic farms that produce like, you know, the organic tomatoes that everyone buys in the little cartons at grocery stores. Like this is not done on like, you know, small mom and pop places. This is still done by like the big companies and like, like it's through the, the like similar big company. It's just a better marketing platform. Right. Right. Uh, and that's really the sort of big part of it. And that's where a lot of the sort of organic people, I think they're like, they're, if you read like people who write a lot about who are like doing work to sort of benefit like regenerative agriculture, mm-hmm. it's really like they, they see the yield drop. They see that like, okay, they're, they're trying to talk farmers than doing it. They're like, okay, well, you're going to lose, you're going to lose production in the short term. Like you're going to, it's going to, you have less product, but you can sell that less product for so much more money. Hmm. And that's really where this, like, this is where they can talk people into doing this. And that's, it's a problem for, for the farmers, if they can't sell it for that much money, but if they can, it's a problem for everybody else because, yeah. yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of stuff in agriculture and food stuff generally, it's, it's, oh, we're always going to have to bump up against this trade-off between, you know, the, the, like the actual aspects of production and the cost of food. And because the cost of food is so important for like any kind of political like platform, it's so important for, to like sort of maintain control over societies in some ways. And it's also really important for, for individuals and people who like, who are within the society. So it's like, I think politicians are interested in it, even if they don't talk about it as much. Um, Hence like Biden and like all the Republicans talking constantly about inflation. Um, And I think people who are struggling, obviously it's important too, because this is such a, it's such a big part of people's budgets. And yeah. that's a, yeah, it's hard. And it, well, it makes, me, makes me think of like the scarcity argument, right? Is like, uh, and, it, and it mirrors in a way, kind of like the renewables um, and energy where it's like, we want this more boutique, expensive, you know, harder to get 
uh, energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, yeah, it's like the organic boutique slow food is like the, the same. It's like a mirroring of it where it's, it's scarce. There's less of it. So it's more, you know, the price of it goes up, but it's not good for, it's not good for people. It's not good for societies. I also think about like the political ownership that people will try to have about small is beautiful farming. And, you know, I see like people on the right that are um, trying to tap into a populist energy when they say like break up all the big farms, you know, this is the based uh, Trumpian thing that we want to do. But then you look at like, I just look back at the last presidential primary, the Democrats, you know, Bernie Sanders calls for breaking up big agricultural monopolies. Warren proposes breaking up big ag. President Biden challenges big ag. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez targets factory farming and Green New Deal. So it's like, I don't know, like who, why do, why do both sides seem to think that, uh, that they, they're, that they're like somehow owning this issue and like, why isn't, well, you know, why aren't farms getting smaller if, if it seems like both the left and the right have this energy to, you know, break up big ag? Yeah, I mean, I think it's because big ag has no, it's like a, it has no meaning as a term. And my, this is like my sort of take on this stuff is that it's, it, the people mean so many different things when they're talking about big ag. Often they're talking about agribusinesses that don't actually own farms. Like they're talking about Monsanto, they're talking about, um, they're talking about like the sort of big meatpacking, meatpacking companies that, you know, they have, they control producers through contracts but they don't, they're not actually like, they're not making farms bigger themselves. The sort of function of their like, the, the role of sort of economies of scale and the push towards efficiency is what makes, what has made farms bigger. It's, and it's like, there are, there are ways that like policies of the uh, past like 70 years in the United States have also aided towards this. It's not just a purely like economic uh, function, but farms, are, are more efficient at scale. I think there's there's uh, there's tons of evidence towards this, and farm efficiency not only is like you know is low prices is a bunch of other sort of benefits. It's also environmental efficiency often, uh, where you have like the low low inputs, lower land use per calorie coming out or per whatever measure whatever you know you want. Uh, so you have your food and the food it takes to feed, you know, the 360 million people plus, you know, all of the people around the world who rely on U.S. exports is now less emissions intensive than it would be if we were going at this sort of small level. So the reason why we have the big is, is you know, it's not it's not completely political, as a lot of people want to say. People want to say it's just a political thing. And it's it, it is not. It's like technological, it's economic. Um, why? everybody is sort of focused on this from this, like all of the different sides of the sort of political spectrum are trying to like take down big ag. Um, I think you hit, hit something with just thinking about sort of like talking about populism, talking about sort of what is popular, um, the sort of neo-Brandeisian anti-monopoly people are also like very up on this, but it's really hard to sort of, it's, it's really hard to, in my mind, to like peg who, like where, where the actual like you know popular will is towards this end, I think I think the sort of NGO e like the the academic world is very much focused on the negatives of like conventional agriculture. But I think if you talk to most people up there, it, they're gonna they're gonna sort of regurgitate in some some ways like this sort of small as beautiful stuff because that's a very popular hegemonic idea. 
but when you get down to like the actual brass tacks of like, okay, do you want to pay more for this stuff? I, I, yeah. I don't think people are willing to do this. And I think people are willing to sort of trade this, have right. this like deal with the trade-off because we've done it for, for, you know, as long as we've existed in modern society. I, I want to ask you too. So something about uh, the NGO world that you mentioned, uh, small is beautiful is one of their, their pull string fra- phrases. Also being in right relationship with the earth um and like being being away from the uh distractions of modernity you know all that um and you say you study africa and things like that uh do the people in africa want modernity in in their agriculture or do they enjoy uh being in right relationship with with the earth you know i I definitely don't want to speak for people in africa (laughs) uh i I grew up in ohio i'm not not african i don't don't, um uh, I think that, but in terms of like the yeah. po- the like leaders, the democratically elected leaders, and uh, you know the things that the things that they're striving for, like with being getting electrified and also yeah. and things like that, like what do for they sure. seem to be stri- What do the people seem to be striving towards or hoping for with like their life expectancy? And I'm leading you on with this question, yeah. but you know. yeah, I mean, I think I think people <laughs> definitely. I mean, there's definitely a, a push towards development by you know certain political groups in in Africa and developing in lower, lower middle income countries. Um, I, I, this is not something I'm an expert in. I know there's like some of the, my colleagues, uh, specifically Vij Ramachandran has written a lot about this and she writes a lot about um, sort of the, the, the issues of fossil fuel bans that are, that places like the World Bank are trying to impose on developing countries uh, and how that is, you know, just a, it, I think she calls it colonialism and green or green colonialism. Yes. And I think you see this, you see this, you see this in food too. I mean, you have, you have, there's a lot of different forces working in sort of the NGO development world. And there are a lot of folks who are doing this, like trying to push this sort of smallest beautiful, like we need to just like make the smallholder farmer more economically viable, uh, et cetera. And then you do have this sort of like green revolution two or 3.0, whichever one you want to talk about historically. Um, folks who are also pushing for like different kinds of mechanization and intensification and sort of capitalization of agriculture uh, in developing countries. And so, I mean, it's not, I think it's not, there's no, it doesn't seem like one side is winning and it also doesn't seem like one side is like necessarily winning the hearts and minds either. I think it's, it's, I think it's more complicated in a lot of ways when you start thinking about um, like, how do you, how do you sort of handle the sort of shift of, labor from agriculture to urban environments? How do you sort of like, how do you like build out agricultural systems that aren't going to like then lead to other kinds of like lack of like non-resilient sort of production? Um, and it's, it's complicated. And I think how like trade fits into this is also really complicates all of this because, you know, a lot of American farmers are like licking their lips, looking at like wheat prices going up right now in, in because of the Ukraine, Russia stuff and trying to get export contracts that are gonna, you know, could potentially put the like economic viability of agriculture in certain places like out of bounds because it's gonna be more expensive for them to produce this stuff than it is for us to produce it and ship it. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of complication here. Um, but I think, I think like historically, I mean, you look at, look at a lot of post-colonial states, like the, the like post-colonial modernization is, is a lot of cases, it's like to us projects. Sometimes it's, it's a Western project, but it's also a lot of times like a post-colonial, um, 
leadership product. It's a product project of postcolonial leaders who are, you know, firmly thinking about their state and their people to war and trying to, you know, make these countries and these people flourish. So, I mean, you see that all over the place, um, and you see, you know, pushback on that. So it's you have you have different dynamics, but similar dynamics than you than you do that you do here as well. And what's funny is that like you know usually i'm not agreeing with jacobin <laughs> things but this article i was like whoa they put out a good one um but what's funny is they got like you guys got a lot of pushback on this article mm-hmm. um and from it seemed like from both sides sort of like this uh ultra leftist kind of like degrowth side and then the more conservative kind of like localist side I mean, what, what would you say are like the, the things, I mean, if you could, you saw that, I'm sure you watched like the comments rolling in and whatnot. Yes. Yeah. what are some of the things that you saw that stuck out to you that you like, if you could address them now, like, what would you, what would you say were the, the, the biggest things that sort of popped up as red flags to you about this? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would say is actually like not ideological or political at all is is sort of the the kind of there's a kind of there's kind of like I don't know what the right word to put is but like there is uh there are a lot of people who are really upset that people from Breakthrough Institute were published in Jackson um and that was like the critique that was the that was nothing to do with the article it was just like why is Ted Nordhaus in Jackson magazine and which is really funny because I mean I think like I've I've definitely spent a lot more time with Ted than the, those people have. And like, we've talked a lot about, about these kind of things. Like Ted is very interested in, in like Marx and, and writing about sort of like class and thinking about thinking through these terms that I think would be, you know, fit well in Jacobin. And we, I think we're trying to write more towards this end even right yeah. now. Um, and so like, I'm just like, this is funny, but it's, it's just, they're, they're sort of focused on, you know, what breakthrough has done in the past, what, like, how we've sort of criticized the the broader environmental left hmm. uh, and mostly just environmentalism. And they see Jacobin as, like, something that is there, some, some, like, publication that they have the right to. And if they don't, if they don't publish people who fit into this, like, you know, specific environmentalist perspective, um, then it's, like, some, some crazy thing. And I think... Right. Yeah, so I mean, I think that may not encapsulate all of the people who were making that claim. There, there may be other sort of claims I'm not getting at. Uh, but that was the first thing where I was like, "What? Like, why? Why? Like, I'm I'm happy to like get, you know, trolled and like trying to get dunked on on Twitter. But like, you know, just just this like, you know, like reviling of, of our organization just because we're just, just the the issue with the piece is just that we wrote it seems right they couldn't engage with the ideas in the article yeah and yeah. and it probably is because the i they they felt personally attacked by it probably i that's just my guess i a few months before you guys put out this article i i tweeted out something about um apple picking mm-hmm. i said city people who think things like apple picking and small local business are quaint and charming don't realize they're a marketing demographic for an industry that caters to small as beautiful Schumacher and ultimately what I think are Malthusian values. 
I said, it's fine if you like these things, but just realize that the tourism industry, the agro-tourism industry is struggling in rural areas, repackaging your, your disconnection from humanity and selling it back to you. Um, and people like freaked out at me, <laughs> this tweet. Um, they got really mad about the apple picking thing. People were like, just go outside and touch grass. And like, I think there's something about like people get offended because they were they were kind of like bought into that lifestyle <laughs> and they're like oh shit this is just they don't want to hear that it is just a lifestyle hit dogs will holler <laughs> they they want to say they want to believe that um picking the apples or going to the farmer's market or backyard chickens too are like a big they're so popular now mm-hmm. backyard chickens um and people think that they're changing the world. And, and, you know, I, I have a lot of empathy for people like this too, because it gives, it gives people like a taste of like, like they have a sense of control over their, you know, their destiny. And they, they, they alone can sort of like be the change they want to see in the world. But um, I think that there's those of us who realize that the problems that we have are collective problems because we live on a collective scale now. We live in a socialized world where production is socialized um, and therefore we have to attack things in a socialized way. But this, I don't know, um, <laughs> maybe maybe that there's something, they didn't seem to come after you guys as, as hard. There was a comment that I saw in here, uh, a guy who said a very similar thing about how it offended the people who pay $500 to go for a weekend to pick apples. And a lot of people seem to respond positively to that. They were like, Oh yeah, that's, that really is this, like, it's, it's, it really seems just like an upper middle-class thing that, that people just get offended, offended by, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think another sort of element, one that I sort of critique that I actually engaged a little bit was sort of um, folks who were, I mean, there was just one, one account who, who was sort of saying that the, the piece really doesn't do anything but like sort of leverage or like level of critique of like accountability by association or something just because like rich people really like this food and like this is like a PMC or like a sort of like upper middle class or, you know, it's, it's a devoid, it's devoid of like working class folk. Right. Um, then that's like why we're saying it's bad. Like I right. think that the sort of point that they were trying to make was that, um, that was sort of like just saying this is like, like you know what rich people like or what what people who are um, who don't have to like like work for their actual money um, like is is sort of a bad argument. That was sort of one of the positions, and I right. think that like we 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 do make a, like sort of try to point out that this is like an aesthetic project of of like the PMC. It's an aesthetic project of like sort of like fine dining in a way yeah. towards like making their their thing more palatable and like more of like a hegemonic sort of cultural thing. Um, but I think the, the point that, you know, that missed again was sort of the, the, the reality that like, this is not, it's not just that this is, this is just a tie to this specific like sort of PMC aesthetic, but that, but that because that the sort of claims, the sort of political claims that this is making is wrong. I mean, in the political yeah. and environmental claims that they're making. 
Um, and that's, I sort of just coming back to the, the environmental stuff because that's sort of a, that like really feeds a lot of the, the politics of this. It's like this idea that you're doing something for, you know, for climate, for the environment, for like, we need to leave, leave the world better for, for our children, et cetera. Right. But, but the actual reality is that this is not, if you are, if we, if you, do what if we do what you say we should do we're, we're making the environment worse like we're we're using more land we're right. doing we're taking you know we're, we're hurting biodiversity more for that reason like we may have better you know on farm biodiversity and this gets to the point that you said before that they sort of feel like we need to be like closer to the land and like have a better like sort of more like symbiotic relationship and people like have this idea that organic farms are somehow like just like soft and like they're gonna like we're like working with natural natural cycles etc and you know in some cases there are you're working with like the nitrogen cycle you're working with the carbon cycle but it's not like you're not farming it's not yeah. like you're leaving this land alone you're still doing something to the land and there's still you're still like it's still extractivist even if it's like slightly less extractivist and mm. I think, so people seem to think that like you know conventional agriculture is an extractivist kind of agriculture and organic agriculture is not. And that seems yeah. to me like this, that feeds the sort of environmental politics of this in a it's way. Like, it's like a brilliant marketing scheme that has convinced people to argue against their own interests and what they actually want, <laughs> which seems like such a common thing. You know, the people, it's all these like marketing tricks to get people to like, buy into something that's doing the exact opposite of what they think it's doing um because they don't they just don't understand the economics of it you know another really interesting angle that i thought in this article was um the what was it the the dirtiness and the the purity and the the cleanliness right right and this idea that like um homegrown and local food connotes this these values of being um, clean and pure and that uh, people who eat the mass produced food is like dirty and contaminated. And there's a classist undertone of um, that poor people just don't make good decisions or um, that they're, they're dirty or sickly or uh, unpure. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And that also combined with the statistics that you brought up about um, in high cost urban areas like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, low paid workers have a greater commuter burden than higher paid middle and upper income professionals. Um, And I, I just think that this pairs perfectly with, you know, other elements of the smallest beautiful argument, like biking to work, you know, or walking to work where, you know, low income working people can't do that. They have, they, cause they can't afford to live in cities. Yeah. They have to bike in. They have, they don't have as much time to cook their food. They don't have time to grow their own food. They don't have time to, you know, bike to work, to walk to work. It's all these little things that are great if you have the time to do it, but telling people that if they don't do it, that they're somehow less than it, yeah. it, it imbues this kind of classist, nature in it and yeah i just thought that was a a really interesting part of this article yeah i I think so too i mean this the um that was an interesting thing and i I had never read the work of mary douglas who is an anthropologist who i think does a lot of work to sort of 
uh, like sort of show how like cleanliness works to divide societies, like works to like say who is in group and who is out group and all this kind of stuff. And I think when you um, like when yeah when you listen to a lot of the folks talking about about and you listen to Alice Waters and the sort of in the New York Times article that we sort of that was the impetus towards writing this we, we she came up there was a I think this was in like July June or July of last year she did an interview where the um so the interviewer asked her like what she thought when people called her work elitist um was like her response was that like no no, no this is like I, I can't sacrifice anything for whole like like in against wholesomeness and this mm. idea that like this is like the wholesome thing to do that like everything else is, you know, and I think we talked about this earlier in that, in the piece where like the sort of the alternative to wholesomeness was uh, like a just like Amazon distribution center worker who yeah. was like stuffing their face with cookies and yep. fast food. And like, for one, like, like this is, I mean, the fast food thing is ridiculous because people like everybody eats fast food. It's not, yeah. it's not a poor person thing. And again, it's like, there's a kind of like, it removes agency from people, from poor people and people who like have to make decisions that are, you know, they actually have to make decisions about what they buy because it actually impacts their life. Mm. And it actually sort of dictates like where you can live. It dictates mm. like where, whether your kids can go to school in a certain area, it dictates all of this stuff. It dictates where you can get your kids to school, like how you can get your kids to school. If you can buy them books that they need, it's the, food is such a big you know section of of our budgets and i think like another part of the the work that was really interesting here for this piece was looking at sort of the uh purchasing data um that is published by the u.s government and the percent of income that people spend on food is is much higher as you get lower and lower down sort of the income brackets um and that means that everything else get smaller, like all the budget right. for all these other aspects of life that are like, you know, healthcare, things right. that are really important. It's because food and like consumption of food is not elastic. I, I, I always missed it, but you, everyone has to eat. Like we can't, we can't sacrifice like food in the way that we could sacrifice other aspects of our lives that, you know, are super important in the long run, but like the, the, the day-to-day needs are there with food where, you're going to sacrifice your future success or something to yeah. be able to eat today. And that's right. something that is totally missing from this idea of like all of these ideas of like slow food and the wholesomeness right. of food. Well, I think that hits on it too. And another missing part is that like the reason why these people can sort of screw around with backyard, their backyard gardens and local food is because they have the option to yeah. fall back to <laughs> going to the grocery store whenever they want or going to you know the big box stores whenever they want yeah. um if they if they didn't have that option to fall back to they might think a little differently about this stuff you know if they were forced into this position of having to grow their own food um they might think a little bit differently about it but yeah, <laughs> and i think i think there's something i can't remember the name of this book there's a book that came out like in the months between this article, or maybe it was like right around the same time. But I mean, one of the claims there is that it's, it's you know, people like it's, it's hard, it's a mistake to think that like you're getting, people are being forced towards like some set of choices or not. I think that happens sometimes, but you know, people are still thinking about it. It's not like, 
this the whole purpose of this or the whole outcome of this stuff is really just to make people feel bad like that's what happens in this because people yeah. are trying to make the right choices right making the choices that seem right to them right so when you have all this information saying like you know this choice is the worst this one is the best then you're going to have the issue and then you can start talking also about like all of these like diet related kinds of things seed oils right the seed oils are bad that's what everyone says now that's a that's a that's an interesting sort of thing but yeah i mentioned to you alex in in twitter like these people who are you know who own like the there there is a group of people who were sort of jumping on to the article when it came out, who have since all been banned from Twitter. I've noticed recently. Mm-hmm. I went back and looked at it when, when you just hit me up. Um, but they're all like, you know, radical, decentralized, like crypto people <laughs> who only eat beef and only eat regenerative raised pasture beef. And so this they eat is it like, raw. I don't know, but but this is like, but this is again, it goes towards the seed oil folks who are like, you know, this is how you get like, you know, it's like a character in, in, uh, in what's it called? Um, you know, they're just like protecting the purity of essence. What is that movie? (laughs) Dr. Strangelove. Um, yeah, it's like this, yeah, the, the, the Colonel who, who is protecting his purity of essence and away from fluoride in the water. It's a very similar, very similar vibe. That is very similar. Yeah, you know, and you brought up something before about how uh, it's kind of a reaction to like, like you mentioned the Amazon worker eating fast food. And I feel like there's this undercurrent with all this stuff where people see like the Great Reset and like the kind of uh, everyone's living in a pod eating bugs, you know, they and they maybe they want to paint you into that corner that like, oh, you want us all to like, you know, eat this like low nutrient slop and like have it driv- delivered to us by drone because it's the most efficient thing to like keep the highest number of people alive. And then these people like go and have this like opposite reaction where they say like, oh, I'm going to go back to the, I don't, I don't want that. The way out of this is for everyone to go back to the land and uh, you know, whoever makes it, makes it, you know, that's like, <laughs> and the thing is like, even in that like kind of gr- great reset scenario, like they're accounting for that. They know that that, sort of thing and i say they conspiratorially but i mean like uh you know the the let's say like companies the like ruling Am- class <laughs> yeah companies like amazon or you know salesforce or microsoft or whatever um you know they're accounting for that and it's actually like a nice escape for the well-resourced people in that like in this kind of like silicon valley you know finance world it's a nice escape. They're the ones that actually get to go by the farm at, you know, out in the country and go live there. And then they can drop back into their like great reset life, you know, whenever they want, because they can afford to do it. And th- that's the thing is like, it's a, it's an escape. It's a solution for rich people or, or upper middle class, at least to be able to like drop out of the like super connected modern world. And then like, you know, do this LARP for a weekend or for a month or whatever. And then they can go back at any time to keep making their money. And then they can go back and forth as they please. Whereas, you know, let's say in the global South, like this isn't a, cho- it's not a choice for people. Like in the global South, if, if everyone's farming, that's because like everyone's desperately poor and there's not enough food for everyone. And everyone has to spend their time just like, you know, doing basic things to survive. Uh, whereas here it's a choice, you know, and I don't know. It just, it seems like a choice that 
isn't actually addressing, you know, why people aren't happy with like how society is right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is a, it's it's it it feeds off of like sort of dissatisfaction, but it doesn't really, um, you know, it doesn't actually address these things. I don't really have. I don't really know what to say about great reset kind of discussion. That's like not something that I have spent time thinking about. Um, that's okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, but yeah, it does. It's, it really is like a, um, this kind of the, the trying to like fearing sort of technology, at least in terms of food. I mean, you see this a lot in like the sort of Franken food discourse around GMOs. Uh, I've seen this a lot in some of the work I've done to talk about like about like alternative proteins and like plant-based and like cultivated meat and these kinds of things. Um, and the sort of the reaction is really, it's, it's really jarring sometimes because, you know, it's not like, it's not like, you know, impossible burger and beyond burger bugs that we're feeding you. And I think all these people are actually the people who have seen the most vehement anti-bug feeding stuff are actually the people who are most vehemently uh for alternative proteins mm. but um but this like that the sort of like you're just trying to like give us this highly processed food like it's gonna like make us sick in the long run it's a it's there's there's a very distinct amount of conspiratorial thinking around this kind of thing mm. where you know in reality it's like these are these are very similar if not like the same thing mm. as the kind of things that we've been consuming for you know for centuries it's just trying to do that at a scale that is like cheap enough and like nutrition nutritious enough that it can feed a lot of people and can like do any kind of work towards both um you know environmental benefits but also in terms of like economic growth and things like this um, so what are your thoughts would you eat the bugs alex would i eat the bugs uh <laughs> i've eaten some bugs i don't know if yeah. i'd eat uh like the I don't know if I'd eat the bugs like you see in what's the the train movie the uh, yeah uh, oh yeah Snowpiercer yeah. Snowpiercer yeah yeah I mean but, I, I sleep I fall asleep with my mouth open and I've definitely eaten some bugs that way yeah. so I just think that that the sort of bug eating discourse and all of these people I, I think a lot of the a lot of the stuff sort of to me seems like it mistakes um, it like, has a mistaken idea of like what how thing how changes happen in the world or something uh, mm -hmm. where it's like they they perceive they perceive like this, the, like their people want to like really change the world where I think a lot of people really don't want to change the world that much. Um, and I think this, the world needs to move, like world moves slowly. And I think now I'm putting at some of my like Fabian tendencies or something. Um, but yeah, I think that a lot of people, when you start getting at like these critical issues around like food and energy, I think a lot of people want to want to have a good life at the base that have these like basic needs covered. And when you sort of get to the point where like people are sort of, I don't know, I'm, this is not going anywhere. I'm not, I, I'm like, we should cut this whole bit. So the verdict, <laughs> so the verdict yeah. is that you would eat, you would eat the bugs and you're going to get in the pod. Um, yeah, I think, I think I'd, I'd eat the bugs. And I guess if, if the pod, if it's, if I'm, if I'm, uh, there are enough people around, you know, that are making me, making me think that maybe I should do this. I'll do, I'll do it for a little bit. Um, yeah. That's just my social nature. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just teasing. I, no, I think I that that's like, um, people see it as one or the other, right? It's like, you can either do the Ted Kaczynski return to return to the land, um, eat your local grass fed beef, 
or you can get in the pod and eat the bugs. And those are the two choices presented as the future. Um, Yeah. I mean, personally, I'm like, if people want to eat bugs, I have no problem with people who want to eat bugs uh, culturally. And my palate has not developed to (laughs) want to eat any bugs. (laughs) I would rather, I, I mean, I love grass fed beef and all that stuff, but um, I think it's important to be able to feed the world. And I don't think that like, I, th- I think that presenting it as, you know, we have to pick a side with our consumer choices is the wrong paradigm to look at these things. Well, I think it fundamentally goes back to growth versus degrowth and, uh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll read into it with like, you know, Malthusian tendencies as well. That mm-hmm. I think that, like you mentioned before, like it's like a Mott and Bailey kind of thing where eventually, like if these ideas were actually put into practice for the whole population, it wouldn't be possible to gr- to actually grow the population or to grow the the standard of living for the people, right? Like I feel like that fundamentally that's, that's the to me. That's why it matters because otherwise, it's just like, oh, okay, well, it's all just consumer choices. Anybody can do whatever they want. We're all we're in a free country, but I feel like the 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 reason why it matters is that this is a, a strain of thought that is very powerful, makes people feel good, and um, and then people start to think that it's a solution for larger things about how to organize our society, how to feed people how, you know, how to provide energy, like, uh, you know, and I feel like the, the slow food stuff, it, it tastes good. It feels good. Um, you know, I've enjoyed, I've definitely enjoyed some local like food and all that, but it's when you start to draw a large, if you, if you're actually in power and you're like drawing larger conclusions on it, it could, it could be disastrous if actually put into practice for society. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think that when you, when you do start accounting for, you know, the millions of people who do the, maybe millions of people who don't have like a full, full meal every day, then you start hitting up against a real wall with this kind of thinking. And I don't know if you guys have followed the stuff in Sri Lanka uh, in the past year where the Sri Lankan government oh, right. banned the import of fertilizer. They, have, yep. they tried to sort of um, say that everybody had to do natural farming practices uh, yes. and what happened? A disaster. Yeah, it, it, it led to huge food price increases. It led to shortages in some cases. And uh, it cost the government millions and millions of dollars, both in, I think, in terms of substituting some of that food, uh, but I'm not sure if that's right. But in terms of paying back farmers yeah. who they they made go to this new approach. And so, right. I mean, this is, I think it's this kind people of- People will say it's never been tried, you know, yeah. like, like, like real regenerative- agriculture yeah. has never been tried but yeah. then yeah. it actually was it like you know like last year um yeah. and it didn't work and it's yeah it's very it's that i think that's a very like a clear case of where but i mean this is another you know the, the, there are like complications to the story too because mm-hmm. um you know part of the reason they 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 wanted to go towards like low fertilizer and no fertilizer uh, agriculture production is that fertilizer is super expensive and yeah. they're already like so import dependent on so many other things that this was like a, you know, this was an attempt towards economic dependence, economic independence, excuse mm. me. And 
you know, that's really important for countries too. I mean, if this yeah. is like, you know, within the, this, it makes sense. But when you're talking about like, you know, upstate New York versus the rest of the country, it's, I don't think you need to think so much about economic independence in these places. This is where like some of the localism stuff gets like really, it, it becomes important to this. But yeah. I don't know, I'm not against, I'm definitely not against organic agriculture or slow food in the, to the extent that I think like we need to get rid of this movement mm. it's such a small portion of our you know broader agricultural system in the united states at least um, that like you know it's fine it's just the the way that's captured how people think about you know environmentally friendly politically viable agricultural systems that is where it gets sort of problematic yeah it's interesting too because uh, so many people uh in this world of agriculture they say that it's about resilience and independence and uh and as you said i mean first of all the resilience part it makes you more susceptible to outcomes that are negative for farming and for your yield and then in terms of um you know the regeneration like it can you know some of these farming techniques can be can also be disastrous for uh biodiversity and you know affecting like different environmental factors i mean it's just it just seems like the, I don't know, it's, 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 a, it's a marketing thing. It really is a marketing thing that has taken on this larger life that uh, is, I, th- I think is harmful to, to a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. And it's not, I mean, this is, I think all of this is not to say that like, you know, conventional agriculture has not done harm or something. I think that like, yeah. I think a lot of people are, their response is like, but Monsanto. Or, but like, yeah. what about like the emptying of like rural America? And I think these are real consequences of like these these like real negative consequences. Not I mean the Monsanto stuff is like corporate conspiracy stuff often, but you know there are there are elements that are bad about a lot of a lot of things in conventional agriculture. Uh, and you know factory farms are really gross. I mean like they're they're really scary in a lot of ways too, and are like morally sort of bankrupt in my opinion, but they're super efficient and they, they produce a lot of food and like, they're probably not going to go away. Even if we're just like, even if Cory Booker and uh, Bernie Sanders tried to like pass bills to, to ban them, et cetera. Um, but they're, they're just like, this is not, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, and it, it shouldn't because we are going to like, people need to eat and we can't have like, we can't have food become, you know, the, the even larger portion of, everyday budget um so i think there are ways like we have there there are things that need to happen in terms of like you know finding ways to make make agriculture more productive so that we can sort of have less emissions from it but also because we need to make it more of like an economically viable thing to do in rural areas but we also need to sort of maybe move past some of the questions about like how do you make u.s agriculture like a job creation tool yeah. Like that that's a thing that I also like you read people writing about this stuff and they're like, oh, like it, maybe if we do this, it'll be a good way to like produce job, create jobs for people. But this is not like how do you how do you locate populations to have like a serious amount of jobs in rural areas? You like this forced relocation. I mean, like this is this is the thing that they're, you know, the real critics of like modernized agriculture. That's the kind of thing that they're 
the most concerned about is like forced relocation. They look at like, you know, Tanzania uh, in the in the sixties and like are concerned about this kind of thing. That's like the the issue. You read James Scott. This is like what he writes about. Um, so it's funny that they're people are really interested in this right now, trying to like relocate people back to the land where that was like, you know, that's like one of the great sins of conventional agriculture is, is like forced relocation sometimes, mm-hmm. um, or like perceived forced relocation. I think a lot of it was also chosen. Right. And also, ten, you know, the tenant farming dynamic, which if you read some people, you know, who, who are like cottage core or whatever, they, mm-hmm. they think that that was great. That was like a based way for them to, <laughs> for people to like learn good uh, work habits and whatnot is to be a tenant farmer, which I don't know if you read, if you read the writings of some of those people from the 1800s, they didn't, they didn't seem to like it too much. No, I don't think, I don't think anyone, I mean, I'm sure some people like farming, but I don't think like if you have, if it's a thing you have to do, I don't think people are so interested. One thing that I was, I was thinking about coming into this conversation um, and like was in response to things that I saw was sort of, there was a one. There's one tweet that made me laugh and uh, made Ted and I laugh about how under socialism there's no such thing as a factory farm, hmm. uh, which was I don't remember. It was some. It was some politician or some. I don't remember who it was. It was. It was. I think it was a uh, someone who had worked in the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 or 2020, huh. um, and I mean, so just Jesus. I just wanted to sort of talk about this briefly in the sort of the history of, you know, communist agriculture, which is, you know, one that is like one, one that in which scale is a friend. I mean, this is not the history like of what, what did you say? Of communist agriculture. And like, you yeah. look at like, so there's a, there's a great book um, called every farm and factory. That's about, it's about us agricultural productivity in like the twenties. And this, there's a great chapter in that book. It's by, it's by someone at MIT named Deborah Fitzgerald. Uh, it's about how like early Soviet agricultural like ministers like loved u.s agricultural you like really looked at u.s agriculture as like the source of information for like how to build the collective farm yeah and they got they brought they brought u.s like iowa nebraskan you know miss like all these like sort of midwest agricultural experts to russia to like start doing scientific and like like become consultants on this these like big agricultural projects projects and it's like you see this in in that i mean you see this in east germany there's a, another group of called communist pigs about sort of the role of like massive hog farms and uh in building up like food de- food independence for east germany in the face of uh sort of cold war export import difficulties etc and you know it's just to me i think there's a there's a way that this this sort of highlights something i think about how people think about, you know, what it like, how people think about politics and food and like get really confused about like what the, like what sort of agricultural systems match what political systems. Yeah. And they associate communism, socialism with poverty. Yeah. 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 And small scale stuff. Uh, And I think that, you know, this, like this, like agriculture scale in agriculture is a problem in some cases but it's a fact of like modernity. It's a fact of like modern life. Yeah. And this, like, no matter what political system you have, you need to have scale. So if the thing that we're really upset about 
is, is the agricultural system, then we're missing this other, the actual politics of this. We're missing the actual political system. And, you know, if we want to go back to some feudal system instead, like, yeah, let's go back to some, like, <laughs> let's do the small scale farming. Um, and like, this is, I think I find that to be such a funny aspect of this this sort of debate these or this discourse around right around food. well it's funny that you said work because i saw one of the comments uh the one of the replies on twitter to your article was um oh you lazy socialists or lazy communists don't want to work mm-hmm. as if like <laughs> people don't want to work on a farm but that's so it's so funny because it's like no we should b- build society on work and productivity and like but we should make it work to make it more efficient we shouldn't be like trying to make our work less productive yeah. i think it's that's the key right is this combination of work and productivity socialized labor is what got us here a socialized production is what got us here um, and then the, the communist dream is to match socialized production with socialized ownership over the means of that production, uh, not to roll back production, not to roll back, you know, work and productivity. That's really, I, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I wholeheartedly agree with um, that sentiment. I think it's so funny. There's so few people out there <laughs> who say that. And I think the mainstream really put has pushed this idea that socialism and communism is poverty and rolling things back. Yeah, where it's really, you know, it's the productive forces are supposed to get better. I mean, we're supposed yeah. to, you know, we're supposed to get more productive under right. socialism. And that's like, you know, that's the whole point. I mean, this is, this is in Marx. This is what he talks about. I mean, like, yeah. you know, so I don't know, the, the, that I just I also just find it very funny that that is like someone who clearly just doesn't know anything about what socialism is. Oh, there's a lot was, of people. There's like, so many people yeah. out there who don't. Well, that's know a Bernie Sanders is. staffer. Like that's yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, I that's like the Bernie, kind of person. So yeah. <laughs> but uh, but the the no, it's, it's also like that animals are not going to be farmed in socialism. Like okay, if vegan socialism, maybe, but like you know that's that hasn't existed and. You know, if the five percent of Americans who are vegans somehow create a state in themselves, and uh, <laughs> yeah. then maybe this oh, is real. God. But you know, there's and I, I I I have a lot of respect for vegans. I really do. And I have I'm not I'm not one, but I write a lot about alternative proteins, and I think some of the better thinkers in agricultural space are in this realm. Um, some of the people who I really respect here. So I'll, so I'll give that to them. <laughs> I, uh, I can't say that I'm with you on that one, but it goes to levels. Yeah. It's levels. good. No, it's good to like, um, I, there's the, the vegan stuff. It's like, eat what you want, man. Like, you know, and, and if, if you want to eat vegan more power to you, you know, it's <laughs> when you, when you want to sort of shove that down my throat and like, the, you know, it's the guilt politics again. Uh, it's like, uh, if you want to, I'm not into that guilt guilt stuff yeah um, I, i'm not either and i think there there's a lot yeah. there is a lot of it but there's a lot of it in um you know pro beef people yeah like yeah people about. so it's really that's this is not a i think it's called being not, an asshole yeah i wanted to ask you what one more thing so yeah. uh re- with regards to to food prices mm-hmm. and you know with the, with the prices of commodities like energy and food especially um, you'll see people on the right, or maybe who are being uh, kind of branded as dissidents, like they're always talking about inflation with food prices. And then people on the left say that it's because of the greedy companies 
that are inflating the profit margin. They're not talking about inflation because that'll in, that'll uh, uh, mean that Biden is responsible. But they'll say that greedy companies are just they just decide one day to like pump up the prices, and uh, that's why things cost so much. And often, you know, let's say let's say with both of them, there's a heavy contingent of people that want to that are obsessed with resilience and breaking everything down into making like local localized production of food and energy with like renewables and small farms. So what would you say about that? I mean, I, I, it, my impulse is that if their policies, if their ideas were actually implemented on a mass scale, that prices would stay up and very comfortably stay up for a long time. Uh, but what do you think about that with like inflation versus greedy companies being blamed for um, high food prices? Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it's complicated. I was following this for a little while, sort of closely, like around when this article, like December ish, early January, and got distracted by, um, you know, Russia, Ukraine stuff. Um, since so I haven't, I, and I know there a bunch of people are still talking about this, and they're still sort of bringing up and like trying to point to like, um, like huge revenues and profits from companies to to explain inflation and explain food price increases. But I think the it seems like the sort of consensus on a lot of the stuff around from a lot of economists is, is that, you know, the reason food prices are up are much more to do with supply chain and oil prices being up. These are about, these are, it's more about the pandemic and it's about, you know, our response to the pandemic than it is about, you know, companies being really greedy. I, I think there probably is a, is aspects of some of food prices going up that is companies being greedy, but it's, it's, it's not clear to me. And, I think especially with the um, with the sort of focus on meat. So like this is the thing that I sort of have done a little bit more reading and focus on in terms of like meat monopolies and sort of consolidation in, in animal agriculture. Uh, and like the Biden, the Biden administration's response, I can't remember when it was exactly when they announced like a billion dollars for um, smaller meat packing facilities. That's, that's sort of what they were going to do. Like, that's not going to do anything. Like they're not, they're not, if that's like the actual response, like they're not serious in their like attempt to, you know, curb, you know, monopoly or corporate power in the industry. They're just adding on like other, other facilities in like small, like smaller markets, but that's, you know, they're not going to be able to compete three years down the line when economies of scale, you know, make like when prices go down at economies of scale, you know, are back fully, like where we're seeing the sort of reason why these companies have consolidated, reason why we have like mass scale production facilities of meat. Um, so I think I agree that like, if we are going to, if we're like aiming towards like trying to cut consolidation, like trying to like make it a more competitive market, then we're, we are going to see higher food prices from that. Uh, I think there's like little, I mean, they're, they're, I may be wrong about this, but like that, it seems like that it's just sort of how, you know, this relationship between efficiency and price works. Yeah. And yeah, so I think that it's a, it's sort of a, a, a funny thing. And it's really, to me, one of the questions that it raises is that who is sort of this anti-monopoly, like sort of print, who is this working for? Like, what is this actually, like, what is the sort of the benefit, who's the beneficiary of this? I think historically, you would imagine like anti-monopoly stuff to be about prices and consumers. Uh, but in a lot of cases around the meat stuff, it's it becomes 
you know, it becomes a sort of secondary argument for people who are interested in environment, for people who are interested in sort of critiquing meat companies generally, for people who sort of see see these big corporate entities as like the as like the reason why like the politics are a certain way around around meat and food stuff. Uh, and I'm not sure how I feel about a lot of these arguments specifically, um, but it does seem like an actually like sort of a secondary argument for a lot of the folks, like the actual like monopoly consolidation question. And the the thing that it raised to me, and the thing that I think is funny to me is that like nobody's talking about nationalization. Like I think one, the only person, there's one, there's one piece by Matt Perunig. I don't know what you guys think about Matt Perunig. I mean, I, I don't really have major thoughts either, but he he sort of wrote like a almost sarcastic little blog about why don't we just nationalize um I think it was nationalized Tyson. Uh, and well, like they, what, they call him the Bezos Marxist, but yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. He, and, but like, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, like, but there are, yeah, there are some things yeah. to be, to be learned there for sure. Yeah. And I think there's something, I think it's there. a good idea. Yeah. I think you can do that. And I think the argument he made, which was interesting, was that, like, you know, you nationalize this, you set, you can set some prices, you can, like, try to run it as efficiently as possible and compete. And that's going to have a better driver of lower prices in the long run while also setting standards for the industry rather than like, you know, assuming that like, we just need more competition where, right. whereas mm-hmm. like in reality, like more competition doesn't necessarily mean these better outcomes and right. often means worse outcomes for, right. you know, environment, for workers, for, for consumers, because everybody's competing. Nobody can actually, you know, get to the efficiency that we want um, yeah. in the productivity. And like, there are, there are real life examples of this. And I talked to some economists um, and one of the examples I've heard about is in, in, the greater Iowa hog region, which is a great term, by the way. It's my favorite <laughs> term that I've learned last few years. The hog um, region. That's where, you need, that's where everyone needs an AR-15, just in case there are feral <laughs> hogs. <laughs> there, are, there are many feral hogs. That's the real thing. Um, <laughs> but that, down. It's a very competitive market. Like there's a lot of, there are a lot of uh, processing facilities. And that, like that, and at the same time, we have like the worst environmental and like some of the worst labor relations in in the country and it's not because that can like that meat processing is more consolidated there it's because it's more competitive there it's because mm. they can cut back on like all these things and they they are forced to in their minds to like you know sorry my, to get this competitive advantage my cia handler is telling me right now that joe biden said last night in the state of the union that competition actually drives down prices so uh, let's get back on message here okay. yeah um yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I'm not an economist. I'll, I'll just say that. Well, my CIA handler says otherwise. So let's yeah, that, I, that I am an economist. No, no. The, <laughs> the competition brings down prices and it brings down wages. Is yeah. what it does. Yeah. <laughs> it brings down you know standards for everything. I think na- nationalizing industry is a good step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, can't say that I agree with Brunei. I don't want to say I agree. <laughs> I, I don't really, I'm not really familiar yeah. with, with his stuff, with his work. Um, but I, I do think nationalizing industries is a very good idea. Yeah. And it's, it's such a, I mean, this is a very important one, even if we can argue yeah. that maybe we shouldn't eat meat or something, but it doesn't matter. This is still a very important one. Uh, and I'm, yeah, I'm constantly brought back to Lee Phillips and sort of the, 
the social, the, what is it, the People's Republic of Walmart, and yeah. thinking through, you know, plan, how do you actually sort of think about planned economies and mm. all these, all of this kind of questions of efficiency. And I think there's there's a lot, you know, a lot to be valued about bigness here, yes. and yeah. in, in particular with agriculture. You've been listening to the Space Commune podcast. I'm Fox. I'm Alex. And today we've been talking to Alex Smith of the Breakthrough Institute. Alex, what do you want to plug today? How can our listeners find more of your work? Yeah, I mean, you can find me on the Breakthrough Institute website, which is thebreakthrough.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at AlexJMS. Cool. Very good. Sounds good. Thank Thank you, Alex. This was was great. It's great to talk about agriculture.